First of all, welcome Edward O'Day. He is here with us today to share his story about caring for his mother and sort of also your father. Yeah. I mean, not in an Alzheimer's realm, but certainly in one that matters. Yeah. So here we go. Um, keep talking about camping because that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they came to the States in 1970. Probably 1970 or 1971. From Australia. They had gone from Australia to San Francisco, where my dad finished his boards in medicine. And then uh, and they landed in San Francisco, which I think is always fascinating, right in the in the peak of like the whole hippie movement. Mm-hmm. What I think is really fascinating is this was their view of America, right? That like, you know, what's happening in San Francisco, because that was the only place they'd ever been in America at the time. So they're like, this is awesome. Yeah, they're like, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so glad we made this decision. Yeah, so they, were, uh, so they were there right in the peak of that. And then they went to England with both of my brothers. And they, they lived in West London. And my dad had a lot of family in, in England. And he worked for a few years there. And then they came to Nashville. So What type of doctor again? He was an ophthalmologist. Okay. Yeah, he worked at Bandy for 40 years. That's um, Vanderbilt for yeah, all Vanderbilt you non-Nashvilleians. Yeah, so then they came to Nashville. And they, they only intended to stay like... I think five years maybe, and they had never even been to Nashville, but he got offered a job at Vanderbilt and someone said, here's a ranch house on an acre and a half. And they're like, well, we'll go, this will be, be interesting. It'll just be fun, right? We'll go to a, a city we've never been to and we'll just do it for a couple of years. And of course, you know, just them being from Australia and wanting to experience America, they just packed us all up in the van and traveled everywhere. So your dad was a doctor at Vanderbilt. Yeah. When did he, because he got sick before your mom. He got sick in 2009 and got diagnosed with a glioblastoma. Okay, so, and your mom literally got sick right after he died? And so with a glioblastoma, you typically have six weeks to 12 weeks to maybe 24 weeks. It's very well, aggressive. And he had no symptoms. Well, it turned out that he had had a stroke and he had no idea. He thought it was heat exhaustion. And then he was in a meeting at Vanderbilt or he was in a lecture and he was in the back and he dropped his pen. And then when he went to grab his pen, he couldn't figure out the relationship between where the floor was to pick it up. So he just kept... Spatial relationship. Yeah, it was all gone. And so he was like, well, this isn't normal. And he, before he was an ophthalmologist, he was a physician. And so he's like, this is, something's weird happening. So he like, (laughs) I love it. He quietly removed himself from the lecture and went out in the hallway and then he fell against the wall and another doctor happened to see him. Oh my gosh. And they, and he was actually diagnosed that night uh, in the ER. Um, But. And how old was he again? He was 72. So young. And, And, you know, and. What was interesting, though, so his diagnosis was really short, and we didn't think we'd even have six months. Um, They wanted to go in and remove the tumor, you know, which is common. And we all went in, you know, five o'clock on a, on a, you know, I think I think it was like on a, a Memorial Day weekend, and the hospital, you know, was half empty, but a lot of nurses and people wanted to scrub in and be there because he'd been such a part of Vanderbilt, which was really sweet. But in the 11th hour, right before surgery, the doctor came in and said, we're just going to crack open your skull. We're going to biopsy the tumor, but I'm not going to resect the tumor. You know, tumors feed on blood. They grow back even faster. And that's why the lifespan is so short. And so we're going to look at it, biopsy it, and then we're just do a cocktail of, of chemo radiation. You know, he ended up, his quality of life was, for the most part, was decent. But I mean, he lived another three and a half years, which is what? which is huge. And he actually—it's like miraculous. It's incredible. He died in September 2012, and his last day in the office was like August. He literally went into the office one day, 
and then he never went back. And my mom and I and my wife being here in town, I've got a brother in Australia and another brother in Milwaukee, and they were great. They came in as much as possible, but they both have families. And, and we had, our son was born in January of that year, but it was really my mom, my wife, and I who uh, shouldered that. Yeah. So then... That's he, a lot. He passes away, and then a year and a half later, my mom starts showing symptoms of, you know... Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah, and, and she got a diagnosis of early onset. And that, She was how old at diagnosis? Oh, my gosh. She was probably 68, maybe. Um, but... It th- happens like that, though. It happened very fast, I'm, yeah. From what I'm hearing, like, a traumatic event can sort of trigger... yeah. I think she was an amazing, I mean, she was a nurse in Australia, but she was also just an amazing caregiver herself. I mean, someone was in need, you know, she was, it was just her calling to be there. And, and, it's, and she did it without any, you know, she didn't need anything in return. It was just how she was. She just loved to give. She just loved to give. And my dad was the same way. Um, but it was. I wonder re- where you learned it. Yeah. I was just about to say that. Well, it, that experience from his passing to her diagnosis, there's no roadmap, right? So None. watching my mom wrestle with something's not right. She was very bright. You know, she, she knew exactly that she was in the early stages of losing her, her mind, her memory. She did. Yeah, she, 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 yeah she, was very, she was very aware of what was going on. And so that caused a lot of isolation on her behalf. Um, you know, like, did she tell you? Because my mom did the same thing. It was like immediate isolation, stopped doing all of her normal activities, all that stuff, but yet she would deny it to us. Did your mom actually she, say, like, hey, Edward, I'm struggling? She would tell me, we were very close, so she would have moments where she would break down. Like, looking back, I think the process of my dad watching him, you know, I mean, he died in our house in Nicolene. We did hospice there. You know, watching him going from being this outgoing, amazing, loving person to then being in a a bed and then not talking and then being unconscious for, you know, like seeing all the the stages of, and it had such an amazing marriage. They were just the most amazing people. It was a very fulfilled kind of relationship. So I think she had kind of been through hell and back, you know, watching that. And then all of a sudden now going through it, on her own, and, and even though I was there, she was still very alone with... She was probably terrified. She was terrified. And, and she was very aware of what was happening. What was really challenging for my wife and I is we, at that time, you know, Oliver was two, two and a half. We had a really good system in place where, you know, she had a lot of really great neighbors on Nickel Lane and, and a lot of people who checked in on her. But she isolated herself. And my wife and I, after work, would pick up our son from daycare and we would go over there probably two or three nights a week and check on her, get home at 8.30, then go back, start a full day of work. You know, like we were in this pattern of constantly going over there. And then on the weekends, we'd always take her grocery shopping. And she was an amazing cook. And so for the longest time, we'd get all these, all these like great, you know, all, all the stuff that I knew she loved to cook. And then over a period of like six weeks, I realized I'm throwing away everything before we go shopping again. Yeah. So then I'd get prepared foods. And then I'm realizing that she's not even clear on how to work the, a microwave. Um, all these little indicators that were showing us that it was becoming unsafe for her to live at home, but yet she was the most determined person on the planet. I mean, she, you, you were not going to tell her. Even my dad, I can remember, <laughs> this is going to sound really cold. My dad drove for as long as he 
physically could drive, right? It was like, do not take away my autonomy. I can remember getting so frustrated with them and going over there at like eight o'clock at night and sitting down and being like, this is unsafe for you to be driving. Like, I, I need to take your keys. And my dad telling me that I'm taking away his rights. He's crying. <laughs> my mom's crying. And that I don't understand. You're crying. Well, but, but, well, it became to a point there where I was like, I understood the dynamics of what they were going through. And, and I was acting out of love. And, and my relationship with them was so solid that like even when we were challenged in disagreements like that, it didn't kind of fracture the, the love that we all had for each other. We just do heavy. That story, that scenario that you just described, it's so what this disease is. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had like that with my mom, and they do not go well. No. I mean, it is when you try and tell somebody who's trying to preserve the last of their dignity, the last of their independence, the last of who they are, yeah. that they can't do something the right way anymore. It's horrible. It's like the absolute worst reversal of yeah. parent and child. It just feels unnatural. You well, know? It, is, it is incredibly unnatural. And they don't want to hear this from their child. Child, right? Especially, and, like, I'm my mom's third. Like, I'm yeah. the baby. Yeah, I'm I was the baby, girl, too. Yeah. And she just is looking at me like, mind your own yeah. damn business. Yeah, step out. And yet, <laughs> you know that, like, and, and truly, my mom has said some, like, kind of hurtful, like, oh, really yeah. hurtful things. Yeah. And that's not my mom yeah. at all. Of course I know that. On like a cellular level, I know my yeah. mom would never say these things to me. It's the disease talking. But it doesn't change the fact that yeah. it's like incredibly hurtful yeah. sitting in front of this person that you've loved your whole life and looked up to your whole life. Yeah. And they're like basically dismissing you and you're trying to protect them. I love what you said that it didn't fracture like what you had because your foundation was so solid and so is mine, but yet... I mean, every time I've had those moments with my mom, the second she walks out or I walk out, it's, I mean, I just have to get in my car and sob. Oh, yeah. Because it's just so heartbreaking. Well, you're also seeing your parent in their most vulnerable moment, and you can't do anything about it. You're seeing just the sheer fear of what's happening. Yeah. And knowing that there's nothing you can say, you know, there's nothing you can do to make it go away. And then when you're challenged to also put something in place to help them that they're not recognizing and it's combative, it's just that there's nothing natural about it. No. Um, it's not like when your kid is throwing a tantrum and you yeah. have to like be rational with them and say, yeah. okay, you know, let's use our words. or Totally. And then you move past it and everybody like hugs and gets over it and you move on about your day. I mean, there's just nothing natural about having conversations like that with your no. parents. No. And I mean, I can remember there were pivotal moments in that development of her living at home to when we moved into a new environment. I can remember I took Oliver over to the pool. We had neighbors coming over. Having that pool was great because we could go a lot, especially when it was warmer, and swim and be around her. Um, And there were times where she was sitting on the steps with Oliver, and then when she saw someone walk in the yard, she immediately stood up and just lost all kind of relationship of where she was with Oliver. And next thing I know, Oliver kind of falls into the pool. And then I jump into the pool, you know, with all of my work clothes, and I grab him, and and it was... It was a little bit traumatic, and then she goes inside. No, not not a little bit. That yeah. that like falls was, under the category yeah. of a lot. It traumatic. was traumatic. Um, 
But then she goes inside and then she comes out and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, it's okay. You, you didn't you didn't see Oliver. It's, you know, I should have been with Oliver. It's, it's not a big deal. And she was like, what? And she had no recollection of it. And she just was saying she felt so bad that she didn't have snacks and food. It, in that moment, I was like, there was no recognition. Right. And I think a week later, she was swimming with us and she had a noodle and she got... Somehow she drifted out, even though I was right next to her, she drifted out to like around six feet and the noodle slipped from her and she was kind of, and she was very, you know, in, in these moments she was having like these episodes, right? I mean, you, you could have conversations and there'd be these lapse of memory or forgetfulness, but she was still also very clear and coherent, right? It, right. It, it was hard to kind of gauge where, where we were at times. That's exactly where yeah. we are right now. Yeah. And it's hard to gauge. But she looked at me, and I realized that when the noodle popped away... She couldn't swim. But she looked at me, and she was like... And she literally had no idea what to do, and she just looked at me and just went... And went straight under. And next thing I know, I'm pulling her out of the pool. And, you know, the, 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 those are moments oh, that, like... The, the, you know, not... Again, it's like, it's just... Uh, you, you build up a bit of, uh, you know... Res- I mean, it's trauma, right? It's like... You're, it's continuous it, it, it's, trauma. So... It's continuous It's continuous. So for us, what eventually happened was she was driving her car and uh, she was constantly hitting things. And I would, we would come home and uh, we'd, we'd notice that, you know, th- there were bumps on the car. And I was like, she's, you know, like, you, you, you have to stop driving. Like, we can get drivers. We can get, we, we can bring in a team of people. If you want to stay at the house at this stage, we, we can, we can, we can do whatever. Like, we had solutions for everything. Um, no, I don't want people at my house. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, and, and because of, but, and if my friends come over, they're going to, they're going to see me deteriorating and that's going to feel, emba- you know, like that's going to feel embarrassing. embarrassing. And it is. So I came home once with my wife and Oliver, and we look at her her car, and the first thing I noticed is that there's no rearview mirror on the left side of the car. <laughs> and then it was like a bear had taken his claw, <laughs> and the entire you know side of the car had like this two-inch, like, I, I don't, I still to this day have no idea what happened. <laughs> All I know is I panicked and thought, I ran in and I was like, what happened? And she was like, oh, I have no idea. And I was like, well, a bear has clawed your car and, <laughs> and, and, and the side mirror is gone. And I'm thinking, did she hit somebody? Is this... Uh, You're like looking for hair yeah. in the grill. And she, yeah, totally. And she's like, I did hear like a bang. And I'm like, well, where oh, were you? And she was like, I think I was in Green Hills. I'm driving all over Green Hills trying to find another car or or a landmine that's been knocked over, you know, and... and, and Luckily, you know, there was no police reports filed. There was no hit runs. And, and we never... I'm laughing. Yeah. Like literally only no, it's trauma. I'm living this right now. Yeah, it, yeah. So I, that's the only reason I'm finding humor in this. Otherwise, I sound like a total psycho. No, no, no. You have to find humor in it. Because in the moment, it's not humorous, right? No. But you have to find humor. terrified. So fast forward, you know, I, I take her car to the shop and I get her a rental car. And it was a modern car. I uh, pull into the driveway in this modern car... And she's sitting on the uh, on the seat next to me. She could have like a push button. Yeah, she everything was pushed. Yeah, every, and she was like, <laughs> she was looking at me, and she was, and I was like, "Are you okay?" And she she was like, "Well, can we just go over a couple things with the car? Because I'm just not used to this type of car." She was always great at being like, "I'm just not used to this. I don't think I've been in this model before." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's just the model." <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's just the model. Yeah. I mean, she was really, I mean, the great thing about her during this stage was that she did, other than driving, she did have, she did have an awareness of what, of what she should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah. My mom does um, too right now. Yeah. Like and, last and, night she wanted to leave at 4.30. Yeah. I was like, Mom, you know, you haven't even been here that long. Like, you can stay a little longer. She's like, no, 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 it's going to be dark soon. Like, yeah. I really don't like to drive at night, and that's brand new. Yeah. So that, that made me start wondering, like, uh-oh, is her vision not... Well, yeah. You know, is, is that deteriorating now? So we sat in the car, and she was like, can you tell me what D and R means? And I'm like... Oh, man. I was like, you, you mean drive and reverse? And she was like, yeah, can you just run me through that? So, like... And I was, and it, it dawned on me in that moment that she had no recollection of how to drive, and so I was like, "Hey, we should go inside." I, I learned in those moments that it's just all about redirecting. Redirection. So I put the keys in my pocket. We went inside. I made her a cup of tea, and I went to work. And she never drove again. Yeah, uh, you know, we. And she never asked. Like she was never like. No, she, so she was great about. What she was great about when the time had come for something like that, she wouldn't. She wouldn't fight it, you know. I, th- I think she was also acutely aware of the fact that she had no idea how to drive, and that terrified her. I think in a in a moment of clarity, she was like, "I I don't know how to. I, I don't know what this does, but I know that this does something in the car that's important." So I think she was kind of like, "I don't need to drive." She never asked me to drive again. The biggest thing with that stage is that you need to be in an environment where you are being challenged in a way of like, you know, art or reading or, or singing or just being around people to have activity and, and to kind of stimulate your brain. And she was having total isolation. Other than these people who would come pick her up and drive errands and take her to Starbucks and, you know, these four hour blocks once a day, she was still very alone. That's how my mom is. And it puts so much pressure on you, right? Like that's how I feel right now. It's like, yeah. if I'm not with her, I should yeah. be with her. So... We were very fortunate in that my dad's only mission in life was that no matter what happened, that she would be okay. Since her mother lived to be 105, my dad was like, I don't, if she lives to be 105, I want to make sure that she's covered for it. My parents, their, their ethos was all about giving and, and charitable donations and all, you know, my dad, that, that was just who they were. But what I love about what he left was in retirement was enough money to make sure that if something happened and he wasn't here, she would be okay. And so we were very lucky in that Abe's garden had an opening and that a, we had the means to pay for it and that it had a quick opening and we were able to, to, to get her in it without her even knowing about it. Um, and are you familiar with Abe's garden? Yes. In fact, we've had Judy given on yeah. the podcast already. Yeah. Judy's amazing. Amazing. Um, their whole family and yeah. what they did yeah. and the mission behind Abe's Garden and just how they founded it and like went around the country trying to like find best practices. Yeah, it was, it's like incredible. Over seven years. Yeah. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Um, such an amazing story. So we got lucky and then the next thing was how are we going to get her there? And I don't know if I thought going to Abe's was going to remedy some of our problems. I think maybe I was hoping that it was just because I knew she'd be safe. The process of getting her there was is a funny story. My brother Luke flew down. We decided we were going to have this intervention. My brother in Australia couldn't come. So my brother Luke flew down. And on a Tuesday... It's a scary day, right? This was a very scary day. We'd, ha- we'd, ha- we'd also had brought in a great social worker that had been meeting with her 
for like six months and had built a relationship with her. And so we had the social worker and my brother and I all just kind of show up at the house at three on like a Tuesday. And it was very much like this day. It was a beautiful day. Her house had windows. You know, the sun was coming in. The backyard looked gorgeous. And But we're all in the back room and she's like, you know, she was very smart. She was like, well, this is interesting. She was like, everyone's here all of a sudden at three. And we were I'm like, like already tearing up. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, two hours later, I won't bore you with the extent of it, but two hours later, the social worker and I walked out and she's like, your mom's probably the most stubborn person I've ever met in my life. And every plan that we had in place for this conversation, my mom just laughed at us. We were like, so hey, tomorrow we're going to take you to Abe's Garden. We've got a room for you. We're just going to try it out for two weeks. You know, and she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. This is exactly how it's going to go with yeah. everyone. Like, to a T. So my, my, my brother was like, I'm in Milwaukee. Simon's in Australia. We, we're really concerned about your well-being. And, and, and it's hard for us being this far away. And she just kind of, you know, she was like, no. She was like, this is my house. And, of course, we're sitting in the back room, and the sun's coming in, and the dog's there, and it, the birds are chirping. It's like it was a beautiful moment. I mean, after two and a half hours, we got nowhere and we put a cork in it, and the social worker left. My wife came with our son, and we went and had a big Indian meal, which our family always does, at, at uh, downtown. And we kind of laughed and just went on and, and kind of ignored, you know, that part of the conversation. Did you take her with you? Oh yeah, yeah. We took her. It was really great. Like we, we just again, it was kind of like constantly redirecting. It was like, okay, well that didn't work. Let's go have a big meal as a family. She even remember the conversation by oh, yeah. the middle of dinner? She did, and but but there's no way she'd bring it up. And she was very quiet. I mean, we, we laughed and stuff, but she was very quiet. So that night when she went to bed, we called my brother who was staying at the house, and he was like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, and this, this, is, where I, I, this is where my relationship with my brothers, them being uh, not involved in the day-to-day could come in and do things that I couldn't, I couldn't wear every hat. And so him coming in in a, in a minute or a day and being able to give a lot of energy to something where I am tapped out because I'm navigating so much was, was uh, one thing I'm really grateful for with my brothers because my wife and I were on the call with my brother and he was like, I don't know what to do. He's like, tell me what to do. And my brothers are six or seven years older and I was like, you have to literally in the morning when you wake up, go tell mom, she's going to Abe's garden. You were going to go through with it no matter what. Yeah, we, we had to. I mean, it was for her safety. And I just remember there was this dead silence. And he was, you know, processing it. And we're all, and him and I are very close. And he was like, so just so I get this straight, he's like, so in the morning, I'm going to literally go into her room and say, we're packing up your stuff where we're going. And I was like, yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's the hardest thing ever. It's literally the hardest thing ever. I'm so sorry. I mean, it's, it's part of the journey, and I think... No, but it's like the worst part. It's the part I'm definitely dreading. Yeah, well... It you guys are really brave. Well, thank you. And, and you're like, especially being the youngest, and being able to direct my brother is nine years older than I am. Yeah, he was seven years older. Yeah. And like, telling them what to do. I mean, that takes so much bravery, Edward. At my dad's funeral and my mom's, we all got up and spoke. And it was amazing when I was listening to them speak at the funeral, I realized what I wanted to say was, as much as I wanted to, 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 
to talk about my mom. I also wanted to talk about my brothers. And that moment of, uh, I can't imagine what that would have been like for him. And I thanked him because it's like, I didn't have the strength to do it because I was spread so thin. That's exactly how I am right yeah. now. Yeah. Exactly. And you've got a, you've got your, I mean, he's, you know, it's like everyone has their stuff, right? He's got his, his daughters and, and I've got, you know, my son and who was, you know, much younger at the time. And, and he did it and he, he got up in the morning and he said, you know, you're coming with me. What did she say? It was amazing. She said, I'm not. And she said, and she walked down the street to Shirley's house, who was her close friend. And she said, I'm going to go talk to Shirley. And, um, and Shirley said, she came back and said, okay, well, Shirley said that I need to go. And she, and, and she was like, but I want to go talk to my doctor. And if my doctor says that I need to go, then, then I'll go check it out. And, uh, and of course, Luke was like, okay. So he, he took her to see her doctor, and her doctor said, this is what's best. And we had already had everything in her room. My wife had been, my wife had done all of it. And we moved her in that day. And uh, to make a long story short, at the very end of the day, we were sitting in the bed with her. My brother and I were on either, on either side. My son was on the, sitting on the corner of the bed. And my wife was sitting in the chair. And my mom looked at us and she was like, well, I'm ready to go home. And we were like, you're not going home. And she was like, well, no one told me that. And she'd completely forgotten. And, uh, and I was like, well, we're just going to try this out for a little bit. Oh, Edward. And she, uh, you know, and she, and she never went home, obviously. But I, I think what was also challenging during that time was, and something I never expected, was the resistance that we got from her friends some of her oldest friends, the resistance we got from them and from outsiders telling us that we were doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Because she, so when she got into Abe's, she was one of the most high-functioning people at Abe's. I mean, she was, she was walking around. And it, Abe's for me was something very different than it was for my wife. So my wife, when she was at Abe's, could go in and greet everybody and see everybody at every different stage and be open and and I would see these people on every stage and think that's going to be my mom and you couldn't and, deal I, with it. and my mom would and my mom knowing me would always say when you walk out of here she's like you smile at all those women men who are smiling at you and don't you know don't be shy because I mean she she we were very connected in that way but so we I mean I had close that's friends. so touching it, it was I mean that's yeah it, she was always kind of the teacher in that way. But I had close friends of hers call me and challenge us and say that we were doing the wrong thing and that she was fine. I had, uh, it was an, uh, an onslaught of people really. Because uh, they do look fine to so many people they and look can fine. hold conversations yeah. and, you yeah. know, they appear fine. I had, we had, I had a, a close friend call and say that my wife should have quit her job and we should have moved in the nickel lane. And we should have taken care of her. Oh gosh! And uh, and the truth is, is and this is what I realized about Abe's is that even though we were fortunate to have care at Abe's, it didn't it didn't take away you know it didn't take away the the pain of of, of watching her, but it also didn't 
It also didn't remove what was honestly happening either. I mean, she called me for the first six to eight months. She called me 12 to 15 times a day. And she didn't call me to take her home. She called me panicked because she was losing her mind. And I mean, she it was like 12 phone calls a day of like sheer panic. And, and, and I need you to come here immediately. And... and and that's what they do. I mean, in yeah. those moments, like they get fixated on one thing yeah. that's terrifying to them. And then it's like, I can't think about anything else. Yeah. And then I need my person. And it was, uh, we had to come up with plans and, and sent, I mean, we, we, we removed her phone and told her we were fixing her phone. And eventually a year and a half into that, the phone was not an issue. It was also interesting for my wife and I, because as she settled into Abe's, it, you know, we also had to remind ourselves that, like, we have a young son and we have our own life. Yeah, um, that's really hard to do. As we, it was very hard. And, and I think my wife and I often reflect on, you know, we, we have an only child. And, uh, and Oliver, through, through my dad and through, through this, has just always been an amazing— Like, even when my dad was in hospice, um, in the house, Oliver, at seven, eight months old, was never— uh, you know, he, he was never a kid that was like crying. He was always this joyful little kid. And even at Apes Garden, when my mom was really sick or very out of it or hallucinating. How long was she there? Oh my gosh, I think she was there for two and a half years. Um, so did, was she there till the end? Oh yeah. So she, the last couple of visits. So well, it went downhill fairly rapidly. It went down. She, she went from being the most high functioning person there to being. Uh, to being the most debilitated by the disease. Can I so, ask you a really bad question? Yeah. Like a terrible one? You don't have to answer yeah. it. Do you ever feel like moving her in there was no. the beginning of her going downhill that fast? No, because she wasn't living before Apes Garden. You know, she wasn't living in her isolation, self-preservation. And when she was at Abe's for the first year and a half there... She was singing and, and, and she was gardening and she was caring for others and she was communicating with people. She would call me 12 times a day, but it wasn't, I need to go home. It's like she knew that she was safe. And I think that she finally surrendered to like, I think anybody with disease, this disease puts on such a bravery of like their shield of like, don't see me suffer. And then I think yes. at Abe's, when she didn't have to worry about feeding herself or she didn't have to worry about picking her clothes or she didn't have to worry about anything, it was like she just could be. And I think that she welcomed that. I think inwardly, I think that she welcomed that phase. But for us, that journey, I mean, I, I could go to Abe's today and see some of the same patients there who just looked two or three years older living with dementia, whereas my mom went from high-functioning, taking care and talking to everyone, to us having meals over there and her, you know, sitting at the table with Oliver and I and grabbing a spoon and, and, and a cup and thinking there's something in it and hallucinating. And, and I mean, I can remember pulling food out of her mouth because oh, she had forgotten how to chew in the middle of it. And then, you know, she uh, she went so fast 
uh, you know, on a Thursday she was in group meetings, and 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 then on a Friday she was unconscious, and um, and then from you know Friday to 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 Monday, you know she uh, you know she stopped eating, drinking was you know. Wow. But okay, so you weren't kidding when you said we do heavy. Yeah, we do heavy. <laughs> the first guest I've had that I've literally wanted to like get up and go into my bedroom and boohoo for like a solid hour. Um, I, I will say though, the, wow. the, the reason and, and what I told Rachel, I, I, how I met Rachel, you know, the Alzheimer's Association is really is a funny, quick story. I was getting a haircut, and she was meeting another advocate who was getting a haircut from the same person, and, and the guy that cut you know cuts my hair was like. You should know her. And I was like, let's go get coffee. I had no idea uh, who she was other than that she worked for the Alzheimer's Association, which I knew nothing about. And so we met for coffee. And all I wanted to know from her was for people who don't have resources that I have, what do they do? You know, how do they do it? And she told me that, you know, they bubble wrap a house because they have to go out and work and, and find income to support, you know, whoever's, you know, uh, they have to keep the lights on or they put them in a state-run facility where the treatment and care is not great. And I just thought my mom, of all people, would not want, she would want, she would, she would want to move mountains to make sure that that could be different for others. And so it's, you know, the reason that I advocate is just because I know that she would want better for those that didn't have the, the opportunities that she had for care. And so... And we're going to put a ton of information at the end of this podcast yeah. up um, on how to get involved with advocacy. And even if it's just emailing your local representatives um, and your government, it the smallest things like truly do make a difference. Oh, yeah. It just takes one really passionate person getting involved um, to kind of start a movement. That makes a difference. And I think to, to, to know also that you're not alone. I mean, I think that what you're going through, I realized that what I went through being here and being on the ground, I also didn't always recognize what my brothers were going through being so far away. And I don't think that they also recognized or, or fully understood what it was like also being, you know, like I think yeah. everyone's journey is different. But so I think, true. but I think at least talking about it, and 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 recognizing that no, no matter where you sit, in the, in this relationship of, of watching someone go through it, you're just you're all suffering, right? You're watching someone you love, or you know, be stripped of their, you know, their basic dignity. We're gonna end it on that note. <laughs> Because that's the bottom line with yeah. this disease, is being stripped of dignity. Yeah. You and I are going to be friends for a long, long time. Like, <laughs> well, I love that. I'm pretty sure I want to like go buy land in Leaper's Fork and like have <laughs> us live next to each other so that we can talk about this like, every yeah. day the rest of our lives. Well, I'm, I, mean, I, I mean, I tell wow. this to everybody. Like, don't, uh, you know, I've had friends. I, I, it's funny. I've had friends in high school who know, you know, who, who maybe we haven't seen each other in you know, a decade. And they're like, Hey, a friend of mine is going through something similar and they don't know what to do. And can I connect you? And I'm like, please connect please me do. Yeah. because you're so isolated. And the truth is no, I mean, I like jump to help people now, like total strangers. Well, yeah. 
doesn't matter. But no one knows until you're in it. You don't know how to do it. No one knows? No. I I mean, I I still don't know how to reconcile some of some of what I just experienced, right? I I don't, you know. Counseling, Edward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) A lot of counseling. My my wife and I are great about, you know, we we do not shy away from that. But I I mean, I, you know, there were things that I, you know, before she got sick, I remember going home to Nicolene. My wife and I got out. We got our son who was like four months old. And we stopped and I was like, did you hear that? And my, my wife was like, I hear something. And I walked over to this fence and there in the bushes, you know, was my dad laying on his back. His face was bloodied. It was like 90 degrees and there were tools everywhere and he was working on the fence. And, you know, he was so puffy from all the medicine that he fell. And God knows how long he'd been in the shrubs. And here I am, like, pulling my dad, like, you know, out of this. It's like this trauma. It's like the trauma that you experience. It's really tough. And then when my mom passed, I experienced a low that I had just never anticipated, you know. You think you're going to feel relief, but everyone says no. No, I felt low. and And I was like... I didn't know if it was depression, if it was, but I felt like at times I was in an elevator shaft, right? It's like everybody around me was stable and I was just falling back and I couldn't reconcile, you know, the the emotions that I, you know, that that I'm still feeling. That's because so much happens on a daily basis that you just can't. You can't. Yesterday, my mom was over and she said something just so powerful about my childhood and it came out of left field. Yeah. And I was like, okay, wow. That was a huge moment. And yeah. I'm pretty sure I can't pause right now to even think about what you just said, yeah. much less process it. But that's just the way it works. It's an, it's a, uh, it's an unforgiving disease for everyone. That, you know, and, and what I've learned is that I had no idea that we had it on my dad's side of the family as well as my mom's side. And so now my brothers and I, I mean, we just constantly live in fear of like, every time I forget something, every time I have a moment where it's like, I live in fear of of my son looking at me in the way that I had to look at my mom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and then just not knowing, I mean, care in our country is so unobtainable for few, you know, for so many people. We're working on that. Yeah. Thank you. 